uh, Matthew chapter 6. I think we have like 13 or 14 different passages today. It totals like 50-some verses. Normally, we do expositional preaching in here. Probably the only thing expositional about today's message is that it's this phrase that we're going to look at is in our line of studying the book of Matthew, which we are going through expositionally. But this last week, we had eight words that kept our attention. Today will be three words. You'll know why. These, it wasn't my plan. I really wanted to hit all of verse 10, but these three words will have plenty uh, for us this morning. And so I'm uh, just going to jump in, lots to cover. Uh, look with, with me, if you would, back at verse 9. So I think we have 50-some verses today to get to uh, 14 different places. Um, Jesus is teaching us how to pray as a prayer coach, he says, don't pray to impress people. And when you finally do get in the prayer closet and close the door and you're talking to the Father, don't just go through the motions. So those are kind of two very dominant things. And so a, a coach says, don't do that and don't do that. But they also say, do this. And so we're going to find that Jesus, as a good coach, is going to say, do it this way. Verse 9 begins, pray then like this. This does not mean say these words, else our closet prayer would only be about 20, 25 seconds. Each one of these words are loaded, and each phrase stands for a category of things that we would pray for. Last week, we looked at verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father. So immediately, God presents himself as a Father, and there's this intimacy and closeness. Who are you talking to? Our Father. He's not everybody's Father, those who have been adopted in God's family through Christ. But no sooner does he say, hey, get intimate with the Father, than he says, now remember, he's the Father in heaven, so reverence needs to be there. Next phrase is what took a good portion of last week's message. Hallowed be your name. Honored, reverence, glorified, sanctified, set apart. Not just literally the names that we say for God, but the name represents the person. So Christ is saying we exalt the Lord right out of the gate in our prayers. But boy... Right on the heels of that is today's message where he says, your kingdom come. The rest of the prayer here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So there's so much here. Uh, I'm not the only pastor who has taken a sermon for this phrase or verse 9 last week. Uh, and so this is very common because of the demand. Hope you noticed already. I want to recap. Last week, here's what we learned. Closet prayer is the fundamental kind of prayer, and the fundamental aspect of closet prayer is worship. If you do nothing else, worship. Christ is teaching us. There is a time and a place for those things that particularly interest us that we want to talk to God about, but we're going to get to those later right first thing is to get a right view of God and to focus on him him and his name and worshiping so worship is at the top it's the main thing we need to do in prayer and that's a new a new practice that a lot of us need to grab a hold of this is how Christ teaches the best most proper kinds of prayer emphasize that the main thing to be accomplished is worship so then we're immediately hit after that with this next concept God reveals himself, so there's these hidden things. Wonder what God is like. Well, he's a God. He uncovers a truth. God is a father. 
But no sooner do we get that done, and he's a father to be praised and adored and exalted and worshipped. But now we come to this concept that God is a king. God is Savior, God is Creator, God is Lord, He's our sustainer. The breath you just took comes from God. He's our Father, but now we learn God, when He's projecting Himself, what He's saying is, don't forget, I am the King. So you want to put a marker there, really kind of remember this phrase. Go with me if you would. I hope some of you will follow along today. First Chronicles 29, what we have here, so this is the last chapter in First Chronicles a huge offering has just been made by the children of Israel. And David's doing a collection for God's temple. And he wants it to be ex- extremely special. And so David himself brings this enormous offering. I remember years ago watching a Dallas Cowboys game, and they were making a big deal about what they call, I think, the Jerry World or something like that, Jerry Jones, because this building that they play in is like $2 billion building. It's very expensive. Guys, if you'll run the numbers, we won't look at it today, but if you'll run the numbers on the verses previous to verse 10, what you'll find is between David's $5 billion worth of gold and then the other people's 7 or $8 billion worth of gold and then you add in the silver and the other things, they're going to end up with a building that is easily worth 15 to $20 billion. And with that as the context, verse 10, notice what David says. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, so here he is talking to the Lord. How does David talk to the Lord? Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel. Israel is another name for Jacob. O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Watch verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty all of that's yours for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours ownership God's ownership it's all yours but it continues yours is the kingdom who has a kingdom a king has a kingdom yours is the kingdom O Lord and you are exalted as head above all so there's exaltation there's ownership verse 12 Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great great, and to give strength to all. Notice what he says. You make rich, you make powerful. Uh, I saw something. I just looked at the headline. I didn't really look at the article. Uh, It seems that Bill Gates has now passed the Amazon guy again. They apparently go back and forth. Uh, Bill is now, because Microsoft, its stock must hit a pretty good little quarter last time, a little better maybe than Amazon's previous quarter. And so, bless his heart, Bill is only worth $110 billion now. And Bezos, or however you say his name, he's worth about $108.5 billion. So, man, that's got to make him stay awake at night, wondering how he can catch up with Bill again and pass him. Why do those guys got so much money? Because God willed it to be so. Why is Trump the president? Because God willed it so. Why is that person in power over in the Middle East? Why is that one in power down in Africa? Because God has given it to them. All this is coming from God, the ultimate king, verse 13. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So here's our thought, kickoff. Your kingdom come. Since God is the one true king over all the others who've ever called themselves king, we need to, right out of the gate in our prayers, 
We need to worship the Lord. And right on the heels of that, watch what Jesus does. Hey, line your heart up with the kingdom. Because, yes, he reveals himself as father, but God is also a king. And we need to bring our prayers in the kingdom of God and mesh those together. And our prayers need to be about the kingdom. So, as I make my way back to Matthew, and I'm kind of just going to springboard from there today, and we'll be all over the place a little bit. Here's the hard thing, all right? The word kingdom is difficult. It's not that the Hebrew word or the Hebrew language has multiple ways that it uses the word, a word that we translate kingdom. And all we got to do is find out this Hebrew word is different from that Hebrew word. And that tells us what we're talking about, what part of the kingdom. No, it's not like the Greek language has multiple ideas and, and words for what we translate one word in English, kingdom. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is that the same word can be used in the Bible, kingdom, but it's hard to discern exactly what it's talking about because we have to look at its context and put it in place and discern what does this mean, what aspect of the kingdom. And I've lost some of you right there, but uh, let me kind of give a quick illustration. We use in the English the word love. Here's the problem. We have one word that we'll use for we love grandma and we love our spouse. That's different, and we love God, and you love chocolate. Same word. you got to put it in context. The word heart can mean this muscle. It can mean the center of my being where soul and spirit collide and mesh. Or it can mean the center of something, the heart of the jungle. The word world, right, the planet, or God loved the world, the people, or a group, a study, we could almost say, the world of science, the world of sport. You've got to put it, same word. How are you? You've you got a whole different thought here, absolutely. Are you talking about your muscle or are you talking about your core being? Well, you've got to hear what I'm saying. Sometimes we're talking about the muscle that pumps blood. Kingdom, there's one kingdom of God. Different aspects of the kingdom. So today, as I'm going to go ahead and warn you, is a little bit tricky of a message. Go, if you would, let's talk about the two main aspects. It's really one kingdom, two aspects of the kingdom. Number one, we're going to call God's universal kingdom. And I've preached on this like the month I first arrived here, but now it fits in this context, and that's God's universal kingdom. If you want to flip over there, Psalm 103, verse number 19. We're just looking at one verse. This, I'm telling you, I had to delete some verses for time's sake to, to whittle it down to 50-some verses today. Um, Psalm 119, look at verse, or Psalm 103, look at verse 19. Psalm 103, 19, look at it. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, our Father who art in heaven, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom, watch this phrase, rules over all. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, throne is for a king, and in his kingdom rules, will rule, no, rules currently, always has, always will, rules over all. Now, I'm not going to spend most of my message on this first point, but we need to look at that phrase, because this causes us some problems, right? If you're taking notes, you want to write the first part of this note down. God sovereignly rules over all. I'm, I'm not saying anything 
You haven't heard before, but we need to taste this again. God sovereignly rules over all things, I mean all things, at all times. All things, all times. He sovereignly rules over that. We've said it this way. Nothing occurs to God. Someone originally, many pastors have quoted it. Someone originally said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Nothing ever occurs. God's never had an aha moment. Never has he had that. Nothing ever catches God off guard. Now, because you guys have been taught biblically, nothing I've just said is revelatory to you. We have it up here. We have it in our head. Right. God sovereignly rules over all things at all times. He knows everything. And we focus on his omniscience. But, guys, it goes beyond that. We really need to feel the weight of this doctrine. And when we do... That's when it starts causing us some problems and some, frankly, emotional issues. We'll struggle with this doctrine. I have. Some of you have. Some of you do. Some of you haven't yet, but you will. Give it time. Life is going to smack you in the face, and you can have a little head knowledge. Oh, yes, God sovereignly rules over all things at all times, and then life hits, and all of a sudden it's like, why is that happening? What do we mean? We mean more than God is omniscient and knows all things. You have to bring into that dynamic his sovereignty and his full omnipotence. God is completely omnipotent, almighty, does anything and everything he wants to do. Knows all things before it ever happens. Never an aha moment. Nothing ever occurs to him. He sees it all, but we go further than that. He does not just know all things. We could even say that he designs all things for his ultimate purposes. And that's now spilling over into next week's message that I've not studied yet. But, man, where, it's, where is it going to take us? God controls all things. I remember I've used this before. I'll not do the long version. We watch Discovery Channel, and there's a little bitty rabbit, and we love the little rabbit. Look how cute. And along comes a coyote or a dingo. And that little coyote or dingo is chasing the rabbit, and he's got a partner. And we hate that little dingo because the music's got us all stirred up and he's closing in and the music's getting more dramatic. And some of you are like, i got to turn away, I can't watch. And you go watch something else, makes you feel good for about 30 seconds, curiosity kills you. You flip back over just in time, boom, he lays the teeth into the little rabbit and you're wondering why the camera people don't do something and stop all of this. This is called the food chain they have to eat. And God knows all about it. And you hate that little dingo until tomorrow night. The little dingo's being chased by a pack of hyenas because he's got a bad leg. He hurt his leg chasing the rabbit. And now he's wounded in the hyena. <laughs> Here they It's two weeks in a row. I'm talking about hyenas. I did that last week with the Lion King. I'm talking fast. Here we go. And then the hyenas are after the little dingo. Man, you hated him last night. But tonight he's the victim and you love him. And you want to see him get away. But he doesn't get away because they have to eat. And you hate those hyenas. And then the next night, sure enough, the lions have to eat. And the lions are hunting down the wounded hyena. And we never really feel sorry for the hyenas. We always hate them. But still, some the food chain. God sees all of that. Planets and stars by the billions. We're not the only planet. Listen to these words. God controls, knows, is omnipotent over, sovereign over, controls what's happening 
inside every planet, on the surface of every planet, all around every planet, inside every star, on the surface of every star, all around every star. Jeff, do you think there are aliens out there somewhere? Do you think there are other life forms? I really don't know. I know this. I doubt there are, but if there are, God is their God. There is only one God. God is the God of anything that's out there. We know about the spirit world. I don't know if all the activity is here on earth or not, but God knows. And God is their God. He controls. But here's where we kind of struggle. There's your pain. Your pain. And your sorrow. And your sickness. And if you're a thinking person, God knew about this. And God can stop it at any time. And maybe he's not. What's going on? And I realize when we frame God's universal rule that way, this makes some of us get emotional, and we don't like that. And some people respond different ways. Some get very offended at God. Some get angry at God. Here's some people's version. They hear all that, and they think about it. It goes from just head knowledge to all of a sudden, yeah, this is very troubling. And then all of a sudden, you know what my answer is? Some just say, there is no God. Why don't you believe there's a God? They usually go to these things because pain and sickness and sorrow and death and, and there just can't be God. Okay, that's your solution to the dilemma that there is no God. Others are like, I don't like that version of God. So here's what they do. They invent their own little. They create a God. They invent one in their mind. But here's the problem. What I've just told you a while ago is the God the Bible presents, the God that is fully in control of all things, all things. Nothing is ever caught. You say, Jeff, all things. Well, what about sin? What I'm trying to promote to you this morning is instead of getting angry or denying or reinventing and going against the Scripture, just admit, okay, this makes me fear you. On a personal level, this makes me love you because you're really good to me and you have this great plan for me and you're very patient with me. But at the end of the day, if I'm going to be intellectually honest and still be true to the Bible, I have to admit this. Can we all admit this? God sovereignly allowed sin in his creation and where sin is there is pain and there is death and we don't like all of that. Death and pain is in our forecast. It's in all of our forecast and God is sovereign over it and God has this creation that is allowed for sin and pain and death. Now what are we to do with it? I want to give you four things that I know for sure and I hope you know it for sure. Number one, there's more but we'll narrow it down to these four. Number one, here's what I know, God is good. Jeff, how do you know that? He's really good to me. God is really good to me. And if you're ever in a point in life where you lose that perspective, you're on dangerous ground. Maybe someone this morning is like, I just, I just don't feel like God is good. You need to sit and just realize that breath you just took, that your food tastes, that your drink tastes, that the clothes you're wearing. You need to go back to the basics and realize God owes you nothing. Anything good that he does for you is grace. Second thing that I know for sure is God is without sin. But Jeff, he allowed, he had this creation and knew that sin would be in it and all the ramifications of it. Why did he still? Here's all I know. God is without sin. Now, here's the big one probably of these four things. Here's what I know. God hasn't told us everything yet. The Bible tells us a lot, but it hasn't told us everything. There's some things that aren't clear to us. And so God is calling for faith and love. We have plenty in the word of God for faith and love. He hasn't told us everything. And here's the other. I know this. God has the ability to take the worst situations and turn them around some way, somehow, so that in the end, they end up glorifying him. 
And he always accomplishes that mission, even sin and death and pain. This is God's universal kingdom. You also need to remember this. Where I intentionally focused your attention a while ago was on the hard things. What we need to focus on is all the graces of God that are undeserved. But to our text this morning, so there's this universal kingdom. That is the kingdom that we're talking about. But then we go into this other aspect of that universal kingdom. We'll call it number two. The body of today's message is this coming kingdom. God's coming kingdom. If you're following along, again, we're working our way through several passages of Scripture. Go to Deuteronomy, or not Deuteronomy, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, two verses. I told you earlier we would have this phrase in our verses. Daniel chapter 7. I want to go in and give all this background and stuff. I just don't have time. But there are these four beasts that represent kingdoms, earthly kingdoms. Daniel is receiving these visions, and now he comes to another vision in the nighttime. Look at verse 13. The prophet Daniel, very special person in the Old Testament. Watch what he says in verse 13. We're talking about the coming kingdom of God. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So he's describing all these weird-sounding, blended animals of a vision that represent these kingdoms. And then he says, I saw one with the clouds of heaven that came who was one like the Son of Man. What? One of us? So this one's one of us. Yes. He came to the Ancient of Days. This is God the Father. And was presented before him. Daniel is seeing this prophetically as he's looking into the future. He sees this actually happen. What happens? Verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Well, these others had dominion and glory and kingdom. No, no, no. This one is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages well this isn't David no this isn't David all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion his domain his power his dominion authority rule is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed so what is this who was this this is obviously pointing to the son of man as Jesus referred to himself follow here we ready here we go Though there is one kingdom of God, one universal kingdom of God, here's what we know. Again, if I'm intellectually honest, Christ is not yet ruling on earth in the same way that he is ruling in heaven. Why not? He's a universal king. He's omnipotent. He has all authority, all power. He has all knowledge. Put all that together. Why isn't he? And so this tells us that our prayer is pointing to something that is yet in the future. Thy kingdom. Your kingdom. Here's our prayer today. Your kingdom come. Come. Meaning it's not here yet as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. I think the only quote we have today is from MacArthur right here. I'll throw it in. MacArthur says of verse 10 this word come. With me? Thy kingdom come. Notice what he writes, quote, this word come means, quote, a sudden, instantaneous coming. He writes, it is the coming millennial kingdom of which the Lord is speaking. So what's this prayer about? It's not just the universal kingdom that's always there. It's this coming, it's this coming millennial kingdom of which the Lord is speaking. He continues. Now watch the contrast. 
It is not an indirect effort to create a more godly society on earth through progressive, human-oriented work of Christians, unquote. Some people, here's their theology. Christians are given this command to evangelize and disciple. If we'll do our job, eventually we'll bring, we will bring the kingdom to the earth. That is not how the Bible lays it out. Yes, we are to be doing that. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. We are to be doing those things, but we will never, we cannot consummate the manifested kingdom of God on earth, the thousand years year reign. We can't. It has to be brought to us. God brings it. It is his work. It's an instantaneous thing. And with that in mind, let's go to another one of our passages, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. This is Luke's writing. Acts chapter 1. We're going to read the first eight verses. So Luke is writing here, Acts 1, look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, Theo, God, Phyllis, lover, lover of God, O Theophilus. The first book I wrote to you, he says, in that one, I, again, back to the verse, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's writing this biography, this gospel of the life and the teachings of Christ. How far along in the life of Christ did he go? All the way until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So volume one of my work here is the life of Christ. He touches on the birth. I'm sure we'll be talking about that in another month or so. He goes through the birth, the life, the teachings, the death, the burial, the resurrection, more teachings, all the way to the ascension until he was taken up. Verse 3. He presented himself alive to them, the apostles, after his suffering, how? How did he present himself alive? By many proofs. King James says many infallible proofs. What did he do? Appearing to them during 40 days. Watch this phrase. And speaking about the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, Christ is proving he's alive. He comes and he goes. And the main thing he keeps talking about is the kingdom. And while staying with them, we think verse 4 is in Galilee because that's where the Lord had told them to meet them after his resurrection. They see him in Jerusalem, but they're supposed to go to, to Galilee. And so they're up in Galilee. Verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So he's saying, in essence, you're going to go back to Jerusalem and stay there. But he says, but to wait. So don't depart, but wait for the promise of the Father. You're going to wait for the promise to come. What's the promise? which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So you guys will remember, Isaiah prophesied it, Joel prophesied it, John the Baptist prophesied it. I told you, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured, poured out on you. Guys, go back down to Jerusalem. I want you to wait there until the Holy Spirit comes. In fact, when? He doesn't say when. He just says not many days now. It's now down to days. It's getting ready to happen. We know it's 10 days later. Verse 6. It appears verse 6 actually happens in Jerusalem. So there's a gap, verse 6. So when they had come together, now they're all together again, he is appearing, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit's coming, you're going to get power. Okay, great, we're going to have power. For what? 
you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I want you to notice some things about this passage very quickly. Jesus is wanting his followers to know, guys, listen, just as I fulfilled some 300 prophecies, he doesn't give that answer, we know that now. God promised the Messiah has come. I came, I fulfilled 300 prophecies. In the same way, the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit is going to be kept by the Father. I promised he's coming. I'm going to keep my word. Go and stay. I want you to know that God always keeps his word. Now that thought is key to everything else that I'm going to say today. Remember, when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Messiah's coming, Jesus saying, I came. The Holy Spirit's coming. He came on the day of Pentecost 10 days later. Everything God says is true. So he's wanting to know the Father's going to keep this. Now look at verse 3 again. Look there very quickly. I want you to see 3 and 6. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom. Keep speaking about the kingdom. Verse 6. So, down in Jerusalem, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's what I learned. The disciples of the Lord, when they're thinking about the millennial kingdom, they are thinking literal and something yet future that the world has never seen. A literal future kingdom. And I believe they're ultra excited. You've been talking about this kingdom, and you've told us to go to Jerusalem and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here's what they know. The Bible, when it talks about the millennial kingdom, attaches it to the coming Messiah and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it's as though, I believe, verse 6 says, so when they came together, they asked, so are you getting ready to instate the kingdom? I think what they're saying is, you're the Messiah, you're here, so when the Spirit comes, are you getting ready to set up the kingdom? Is this what it's about to happen? And they're very excited, and they believe in a literal, visible Future to them, but near, millennial kingdom of God. Theologians have pointed out that if we were to look to the future, here's what they saw. This has been pointed out by many people. These prophecies are made about this coming Messiah. And all they know is that all of that is going to happen, but these things seem to happen in the life of Christ. The disciples are like, we did not understand the whole dying on the cross now, but it makes total sense. You had to pay for our sin. You died on the cross. You were buried. You've resurrected. So now it's time for the other. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and we're moving right into the kingdom. What they failed to see is actually looking at this direction. There's a gap between this coming and the prophecies that have to do with this coming, and this gap in between is called the church age and the time of the Gentiles. Mainly Gentiles are being saved, a few Jews. They're missing that, and all they know is, is it time? I believe they are excited. They think it's now. I'm a theist. If I put the letter A in front of that, atheist, that means I what? I don't believe in God. A theist, I believe in God. If I'm a millennialist, these apostles were millennialists. Some people would consider themselves a millennialist, a millennialist. There is no literal millennial kingdom. Here's my problem. Jesus never shied away from correcting his disciples' theology when it was wrong. They're looking for a literal kingdom. If their theology was wrong, why didn't he say, Hey, fellas, y'all took that literally? Yes, Lord. That was, no, no, guys, come on. You're going to bring the kingdom in. Just work real hard. He doesn't do that. 
What does he do? Here's what he does. He doesn't say you've been wrong in assuming there's a literal kingdom. What he says is, I want to expand your thinking. I want you to think a new way when you think about the kingdom. How do you want us to think? Verse 7, most people still do this. We get all caught up in win, win, win. What are the signs? Win, win, win. And the Lord's like, tone down the win. It is important. Keep studying the scriptures. Don't get all caught up in the win. That's sometimes just human curiosity. And we won't act like we know a little bit more and so we're ahead of the curve. Jesus says, here's the main thing. Focus on who. You're caught up with the when it's going to happen. I want you to focus less on the when and much more on the who because who is most important. You guys need to go out and be witnesses. There are people not going to be in the kingdom unless they hear that I'm the Savior. Go tell people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. So when we're talking about, Lord, your kingdom come, there's something innately in that that says, Lord, we're supposed to be out sharing the gospel because if we really believe this kingdom is coming, and it is, everything you've ever said always happens, then we need to be telling people the gospel so that they escape death and hell and torment and so that they go into the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is universal, but there is this coming aspect, if we could say it this way, that the Bible describes as uniquely special as an extension of the one kingdom. So I'm not, please listen, it's getting tricky here, subtle. They're not two kingdoms. There's one kingdom, but this coming kingdom of God is described as something unique and different, never seen before, literal, on the earth. And so I know I've done this another time, but some of you would not have been here when that happened. And if ever I were going to do it, this is the time to do it, as we're in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. I want to go through a timeline, and I'm just going to hit highlights, confessing I'm not an expert. Second, listen. Good people will disagree on some of the order of these things. Good people disagree on some of the order. Good people will disagree on some of the details. Some will be like, I don't really hold to that. I hold all of those things. I, don't, I take that less literal than I'm going to present. That's fine. They can be wrong on that. They want. That's okay. But what we want to do, what I'm trying to say is I, I would not die for this order that I'm going to present to you, but I'm going to present an order that I heard many times from my pastor and it just seems to match the scripture. He was an expert on this. I am not. So I want to look. You have 14 things. You see, like Jeff's getting ready to do a 14-point outline. Yeah, we are. I, I, I'm telling you, I wanted to hit a passage for every one of them, and you should have a passage, just a sample passage for each one, but we can't do them all. There's many more. Go, if you would, Second Thessalonians. Let's find the first thing that we'll notice on this timeline. Again, we could bog down right here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's look at the rapture of the church. Oh, so you're one of those who believe in a rapture of the church. Why would you say that? If on the side of your document, if you want to put chapter 1 back up there, if you want to put 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 in there, if you, you already have on there John 14, 1 through 3, we're not going to have time to go through all of that. If you want to put on there 1 Corinthians 15, you say you really do believe all that? Absolutely. I don't know how you deal with these passages if you don't have this idea of a rapture of the church. Look at chapter 2. I've actually been in this city, Thessalonica. Today it has about 1.2 million people. It did not have that many people back then, obviously. Paul literally spent several weeks there and had to move on, and now he's writing his second letter back to them. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Watch it. Here we go. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look this way very quickly. Watch. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. And our being gathered together to him. I think right out of the gate we're presented with two different things that are technically part of the second coming. But right out of the gate, verse 1, two phases of the second coming. And part B is actually listed before part A. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Thessalonians, don't get tore out of the frame. How? By a spirit, they'll do that. Or a spoken word, that'll do that. Or a letter seeming to be from us. Oh, we've got a letter from Paul. Paul says the rapture's already occurred. Don't you believe it? He says either by spirit, spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Don't be shaken by that. <laughs> no, that's not what's happened. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Back to verse 1. The coming of the Lord will not come until there's this rebellion first. This him coming to the earth. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. We know he's the Antichrist. He has to be revealed, the son of destruction. Who is he? He's the one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God. He's not just going to be against God Jehovah and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be against, he wants it all for himself. He exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you those, these things? And you know what is restraining him. What's restraining the Antichrist, the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness and sin? You know what's restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way something has to be removed before this man of sin can be revealed that has to happen before this second coming in glory of Christ and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So when the Lord comes, he'll destroy that one. But until now, something is holding him. I'm not going to debate what that is. Some say it's, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has to be withdrawn to allow the man of sin to have his day. Others say it's the Holy Spirit inside of us, the church. And when the church is raptured out, then that's what allows the man of sin, and he's revealed, and off we go. But this rapture, again, you would have to study First Thessalonians chapter. 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, John chapter 14. Let me say this very quickly. I'll not spend that long on each one. This rapture is when you get your glorified body. So your loved one that has gone on to be with the Lord right now, they don't have their glorified body. When will they get it? Just a little bit before I'll get mine if I'm still here. They'll go first. Graves are open. There they go. It's changed. They get it. They're re reunited. We're caught up together with them. Our bodies are changed, and we're with the Lord. What happens on earth? Tribulation, number two. Tribulation. You see the reference to Daniel 9. That is a very confusing passage, just to be honest with you. You'd have to think maybe it's Revelation 13. Can I just say very quickly on that? Once the man of sin is removed, or once, once the church is removed, and the Holy Spirit 
seemingly takes maybe a lesser role than he does currently, then the man of sin will have his time and he'll have seven years. Let me just be honest right here, okay? You're probably not going to find in your Bible where it's going to say seven years of tribulation. So where do we get that? This passage in Daniel is the 70th week. The word week means seven. It's been determined very clearly that it was seven what? Seven years. 69 have already happened against Israel. There's still one more week in God's economy that's separated, and it appears that this is going to be it in the tribulation. The Antichrist will be revealed. Here's one of the ways you'll know him. He's going to offer Israel a seven-year contract of peace. Apparently, they're going to rebuild the temple, and apparently in the middle of those seven years, Probably about the time to dedicate the temple, he's going to reveal who he really is, and he's going to do this, what's called the abomination of desolation, and he's going to set himself up on the throne because he wants the Jews in the world to worship him. The Jews will realize he's a foster and a fake and an imposter, and they're going to pull away from him, and then he's going to turn all of his attention against them because he'll turn his back on them. And now he has the power of the world's armies, and there's going to be what the Bible calls great tribulation for three and a half years. So a lot of people say, oh, I believe in three and a half years of tribulation. I just don't buy into the seven. Some say we believe there are seven. First three and a half are not great, but the last three and a half are really, really bad as the armies of the world are literally hunting down and killing Christians and Jews. It's a bad time to be on earth. Number three, what are we doing? We got raptured. What about us? The judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is in there, other places. We're being judged. You say, we get raptured to be judged? That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I didn't think we were going to. Listen, everybody gets judged by Jesus. Everybody. Now, there's a difference. Catch this. I'm going to say this fast. There's a judge of those as a criminal. That's not how we're going to be judged. And then there's those that judge as if in an athletic event. You say, who's at this judgment? All the Old Testament saints, all the church age saints, and all the saints that are dying during the tribulation period who refuse to take the mark of the beast and follow the Antichrist as they die and are beheaded, then they're going to have their time with the Lord and they'll get their glorified body and they will be evaluated how they live their life. This is where we receive our rewards and this is where we find out where are you going to be placed in the coming kingdom. Kingdom hasn't happened yet. Number four. The second coming of Christ, we could say, in power. What do we find here? The second coming of Christ in power. Notice on the screen, I'll not turn there again, but in Acts 1, look at verse 11. I think you'll find it on the screen. Acts 1, 11, look at that. So Jesus literally ascends. There's the apostles. There's 11 of them. They haven't replaced Judas yet. 11 of them, they're standing there, mouth wide open. This cloud has received Jesus literally from the Mount of Olives, And the Bible says that there's these two angels dressed in white. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This, this is key. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Literally what this means, the same Jesus, the same place, the same way. As he was lifted this way, he will descend. He'll act as he was on this ground just a while ago, Mount of Olives on the east of Jerusalem. He will be lifted and he'll come back, the, ex- the exact same Jesus, probably a little more like he was on Mount of Transfiguration than he was when they last saw him. But the same Jesus, the same location, coming back in the same way. And what's going to happen? Well, the world's armies 
have surrounded Jerusalem and they've bottled up the Jews and they're getting ready to wipe out the last of the Jews. Hey, you want in on this? Come on. It's going to be fun. And the Bible describes it as a cup that they're going to get drunk on. Like, hey, you got to get in on this. We're going to wipe Israel out finally. And here they come and it's their day. But it's not going to go how they plan. Before we hit number six, which your mind is going to already, I want to tuck in number five, the salvation of the Jewish nation. Go with me, if you would, Romans 11. This is now a passage that I think the Lord allowed me to understand what it's talking about, that I really like this passage. Romans chapter 11. Would you look over there? You may want to find that in your Bible and not just rely on the screen. What are we talking about here? So the Lord has actually touched down on the Mount of Olives, and now we're going to find the salvation of the Jewish nation. Romans 11, checking my time, verse 25. So, hey, not a lot of Jews getting saved. It's mostly Gentiles. We must be smarter than them. No, no, no. Paul writes, verse 25, lest you, talking to us Gentiles, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. It's a mystery. You haven't known it till now. He's revealing it. Brothers, listen to what the Bible says. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Well, it's come. The fifth thing here, the fullness of the Gentiles, our day and the kingdoms of this world, Gentile kingdoms of this world, has come. Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now back to writing the scripture. Paul writes in verse 28, As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What's this talking about? Look again at verse 25. Lest you Gentiles be wise in your own sight, get a little cocky and arrogant, think you're better. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Two key words there. Watch. A partial hardening. This hardening means that right now, all across the world, there are, there are Jews who can read the Bible and hear about Jesus. And to, to me, what is so clear, they're blinded to it and they're deaf to it and they just don't believe it. They're hardened to it. But the good news is two words in verse number 25. It's the word partial, which means there's always a remnant of Jews, and the word until, which means it's not permanent. So it's partial hardening, and it's not a permanent. It's a temporary because verse 26 says, and in this way, all Israel. Jeff, what do you think all Israel will be saved? What do you think that means? I am not saying that it's going to be all Jews who've already died who are banished away from the Lord, who did not believe in Christ, they're not going to get another chance. What I'm telling you is all the Jews who are on the earth at that time, when the Lord comes back, all of them will be saved in a very unique way. Verse 28 is basically saying they're going to be resistant. Now keep trying to win them and to be evangelistic. They're going to resist evangelism. But they've been elected for the sake of their forefathers. And this is something very unique. What God is saying is I will save them. I'll save them physically as I deliver them from the Antichrist armies. I will save them visibly, and I will save them spiritually. And so all, Jeff, you really believe? All, I believe that. I believe the word all there. All the Jews on the earth, the whole nation gets saved in that day. How? Now look at number six, the Battle of Armageddon. And with that, I want you to go to the next to the last book in the Old Testament. 
Hey, we're up to number six out of 14. We're moving along. Here we go. So we're making decent time. Got to go faster on the next eight. The Battle of Armageddon. Not going into a lot of details there. Just look at chapter 12 of Zechariah, the next to the last book of the Old Testament. Look at verse 10. Could have included this earlier, but I kind of tucked it here because I knew we would go to Zechariah. Watch this. Here's a prophecy. God says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. It happened in my life in 1979. God says, I'm going to pour out on the Jewish nation a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. What does that mean? Please, begging for mercy. So that when they look on me, well, don't they have to be saved by faith? Here's all I know. They're going to look at Jesus, return. He's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. Grace is going to be poured out on them, and they're going to start. This, to me, sounds like repentance. A spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. They are gonna, they're being chased by the Antichrist army. They're going to run to Christ. But when they do, they're going to weep and wail and sorrow and repent, and the Lord's going to save them. Flip over to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse number 2. Here's what's happening in the physical realm. Here's the Antichrist armies. God's already predicted this is going to happen. They can't help it. They're going to have a case of the I can't help it. Verse 2. I will gather all the nations. This hasn't happened yet. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken. And the houses plundered. It's really bad. The women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord, this is Jesus Christ, will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. Man, if I got 20 seconds, one of my favorite movies is a movie called The Patriot. And uh, the, 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 the dad, played by Mel Gibson, uh, you know, there's these stories about back in the old days and in, in, when, in some Indian wars, I believe is what it was. Well, he was a great fighter, and he's always downplaying it, but all of a sudden it's time for the Revolutionary War. And his boys actually see, how many, raise your hand if you ever seen that. You ever seen the movie The Patriot? And then all of a sudden there's that scene where he's getting the wild eyes and the real like, and it's like, whoa, dad's like, yeah. Okay, that's, that's first Three. Then the Lord will go out and fight. Wonder what God fights like. Ooh. God can fight. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Wait a minute, this sounds like Acts 111, it is. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. This is the second coming that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Watch what happens. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward. Literally, it moves northward and the other half southward and you shall flee. He's telling them already, Jews, there's what's going to happen. You're going to see him, you're going to repent, you're going to weep, you're going to wail. You pierced him you're going to you're going to receive him as your savior and you shall flee to the mountain to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all and you shall flee you remember how you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. I guess we're going to help him fight no we're just watching we're just watching you say well who wins <laughs> guys I wouldn't be up here preaching if we didn't win now come on the Bible says for 490 miles, the blood runs up to the horse's bridle. Whose blood? The armies of the world. They are demolished. You don't pick on God's people. Number seven, I'm just going to say it. Don't have time. We'll not look it up. Satan is bound for a thousand years after Christ wins the battle of Armageddon. 
So you're saying, Jeff, then the whole world is emptied out. There are no more human beings. Nope. There are people that are still left on the earth. Not everybody went to the Battle of Armageddon. Some folks were left back home. What happens to them? Matthew 25. You're going to want to turn there. Matthew 25. Very quickly. Matthew 25. I cannot read all of this section. But now we're going to look at the what happens to these folks. This is not us. This is the judgment of the nations. Matthew 25. Look at verse 31. Here's the Bible predicting. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. So this is not the rapture that's quieter and we're here one minute gone the next where'd they go no this is him coming in glory this is that battle and all the angels with him not so much they're not having to fight we're all witnesses then he will sit on his glorious throne this is going to happen what about all these people before him will be gathered all the nations so all the nations will be put in group no he will separate people here come all the nations. He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Literally, it's going to be like this. You're like, okay, yeah. You don't want. You want. Verse 33. And he'll place the sheep on, the, on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, this isn't us. It could be you if you're not saved yet. If you're saved yet, this isn't you. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I can't read it all, but why do we get to go in? Well, when I was hungry and thirsty and sick and naked and alone and in prison, you fed me and clothed me and gave me something to drink and visited me and protected me. When did we do that? When you did it for one of the least of these. You see these back here, now they, they died or these over here survived the Antichrist attack. You protected them. Well, what happens to the other group? Verse 41. Then he will say, this is a real event, he will say to those on his left, depart, depart is death. Separation is death. Depart from me, you're cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why are we having to go there? Because when I was sick and hungry and thirsty and tired and in prison, you didn't do anything for me. And so you will go into torments. You over here, you're going into the kingdom in earthly bodies as you are. Number nine, the thousand-year millennial reign. Where's this at? Revelation chapter 20, verse number four. This is what we're praying, your kingdom come. Revelation 20, verse number four, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. People die for that. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Others are still in torments of hell. This group, we are serving with the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what is this thousand years? I'm going to hit it quickly. Ready? Here's a few things. Jesus Christ literally will rule and reign from the literal city of Jerusalem. It, topographically, will be a little different. We will rule and reign with Christ on this same earth. We have our glorified bodies. There will be people in natural bodies. Here's the kicker. The curse has been lifted. 
Death isn't happening like that, like it had been. People are living to be what we would think is really, really old. 100, 200, 300, 700, 800. Some are going to live all the way for 1,000 years, having all kinds of just replenishing. The child is going to lay down and, and sleep by a snake, by a poisonous snake's nest, and they're going to play together. And the lion and the lamb are going to frolic and eat grass together. They're going to hang out. It's just like... Animals aren't killing each other. People aren't killing each other. And Christ is ruling and reigning. Anybody gets out of line, he rules with a rod of iron, takes care of it quickly. It's awesome. But then verse number 10, not number 10, not verse 10, but number 10, Satan is loosed at the end of a thousand years. Well, surely he won't be able to do any damage. We can't read it all nor look at all the supporting passages, but actually that will trigger a final rebellion. And sure enough, Satan will deceive many people and they're going to come against Jerusalem again. But this time Jesus doesn't have to fight for God the Father will rain fire down out of heaven. And then what? Number 11 is the great white throne judgment. Would you look at Revelation 20 verse 11? Would you look there for a moment? Revelation 20 Verse 11, this is a real event. So if you felt it, rapture, tribulation, we're at the judgment seat of Christ that is not this. Christ comes back, the Jews are saved, they run to Christ, he wins the battle of Armageddon, Satan is bound, the nations are judged, they move into the millennial kingdom, we have glorified bodies, we're ruling and reigning over them. At the end of a thousand years, it was awesome, it was great. Satan gets out for a little short period of time, he makes his last hurrah, deceives many people, and there's one final victory over them, and now we have to deal with all the fallout, and Christ does that. Verse 11 of Revelation 20. John the Revelator says, Then I saw a great white throne, now focus, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. There's no earth. There's no sky. And no place was found for them. And John says, I saw. I'm seeing. This is literally unfolding. I'm writing it down. I saw, this is going to happen. I saw the dead. Great. Man, that's a powerful person. Boy, they're beautiful. Boy, when they tweet something, you need to listen to them. They've got influence. I saw the dead, great and small. The one nobody thought anything about. Standing before the throne. And books were opened. Books. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. This is really going to happen. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Everything we're doing is being kept in these books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hell, Hades, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And this is a powerful verse, a frightening verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's going to happen. Bind him hand and foot, lake of fire. Why? Here's all the evidence, and you're not written here. Probably, guys, this frightens me. I don't know who. Someone here today, that's, you're in line for that as of right now. Jeff, you said there's 12, 13, and 14. Very quickly, number 12 is the new heavens and the new earth. This one's not the permanent. Millennial kingdom's on this earth. Curses lit 
curse is lifted. But ultimately, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, a whole new creation. Number 13, you want to track that down. It's a really great passage in 1 Corinthians 15. This is awesome. Jesus is the king of all the kings. He has now brought all of history under his domain. And you know what the Bible says happens? Christ gives the Father the kingdom. My kingdom is given to the Father so that in the end, the Father is all in all. And Jesus is the king of the kings. And there's one God, so I'm not pitting one against the other, but the son subjects himself, Father, I've done it. You've done it. He's the all in all. You say, Jeff, what's number 14? We'll call it eternity. What is eternity? Everything that we've just said, guys, I wish I had time to develop this. All that we've just said from creation till this is the beginning. The beginning of what? It's actually the beginning of the beginning. The beginning of the beginning of what? The beginning of the beginning of the beginning. Of, watch. It's just the beginning. The beginning of what? It's just the beginning of this, which is just the beginning of, it's, it's always, we're just starting. This is going somewhere. So if you'll join me in John 3, this will be our last thought this morning. John 3, what are we going to find? Entrance into the kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom. John chapter 3, famous account. Thy kingdom come. We're supposed to pray that way. John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, a ruler. He's on the Sanhedrin, very powerful man in Israel, one of the 70. But he's very strict, very religious, knows his Bible. He's a great teacher. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now remember, this is early on in the ministry of Christ. Nicodemus has just given us a behind-the-scenes picture. What are the Pharisees talking about? There's apparently a divide among them. He's got to be of God. I don't know. I don't like him. He's of God. Look at the stuff he's doing. Can, can I talk to you? Sure. Rabbi. He builds him up. You're, you're from God. Nobody can do what you do. And rather than being all puffed up and receiving his attempts to flatter, Jesus cuts straight to the heart of the issue. Nicodemus, we need to talk. Grace for you, we need to talk. Jesus needs to talk with you today. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Guys, here's something real clear. I'm not going to go into all of this passage, but I want everybody to hear this. Verse 3 and verse 5 are very, very clear. There is a literal kingdom of God. There is a literal heaven. And no one is there now. And no one is going to see or enter the kingdom of God unless they have been born again. Only the born of, again get in. We have this book of life. How do you get in the book of life? You have to be born again. Right now, everyone should be checking. Have I been born again? What does born again mean? The wording here, again, they tell us can mean three things. Watch. It can mean being born from above. 
You have to be born again from above. It can mean born again a second time. It can mean you be born again as in something totally new and radically different from anything previous. So here's our options. Born from above, born a second time, born to something that is radically new and totally different, unlike the first. So which is it? Nicodemus interpreted it as which one? The second one. Born a second time. So you have to go into your mother's womb again. How is that possible? Jesus says, you must be born again. The word again, from above, a second time, or something totally radically new and different. So which is it? Which is it? It is all of them. You have to be born from above. You have to be born a second time. And you have to be, you'll know that it was, no, it's not like the first one. It's totally new and different. Something happens. You're a changed person. Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. There's the two births. You have to be born physically. Hey, I'm looking at you. Congratulations, you have been born physically. You have been born of water. Right? When I was born in 1970, January 2nd, yes, I'm almost 50, um, my mother's water broke. And I was born of water. The question is, have you been born of the Spirit? You have to be born spiritually. You're born with a dead spirit. Living body, but a dead spirit. Soul is awake and aware. Spirit's dead. How do I get in that book of life? We need not leave this passage, only skip down for time's sake. Look at verse 14. The conversation finishes for our part this morning here. Look at verse 14. So Nicodemus won't know how in the world to get this born again. No, it's not going back into your mother's womb. Here it is. Everyone listen. This is so important. Jesus says, and as Moses Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Pause right there. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you know this, you're a great teacher. You know that, what we call the Old Testament. You know it backwards and forwards, you teach it. You remember when the children of Israel are in the wilderness and these poisonous snakes are biting them and they're dying. And they cry out to God and God says, if you'll make a serpent on a pole out of brass and lift it up, if anyone is bitten by a poisonous snake, if they'll look and find that and look to that brazen serpent, lift it up, if they'll look and believe, then they'll not die. Jesus says in verse 14, like that, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What is Christ saying? I have to be lifted up above the earth and beneath the heavens, He's talking about, I have to be crucified so that, verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave, Christ is saying, me, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You say, how do you get in the book of life? You have to be born again. You have to be born a second time. You've been born physically. Have you ever been born spiritually? How are you born spiritually? This is it. This is a wild, wild promise. This is crazy, and yet it's one of many. Literally, God is saying in his word, God cannot lie. God says, if anyone by faith will in essence look to my son lifted on a cross and believe that his death counts for them, now here's the thing. You have to hear the message. You have to receive it as true, 
and then you have to trust it. Some never hear this message. They'll not go to heaven. Some hear the message, and they don't believe it. Watch. Some hear the message, and in their head say, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for everybody's sin, and it, it, it'll save people from hell. But it's just here. You have to do all three. You have to hear it. You have to receive it as true. God can't lie. And then you ultimately have to trust it. Jeff, how do you get saved? Guys, I can't fancy it up. It boils down to this. You either believe verse 14 through 16 or you don't. That's what it boils down to. Hold on. Son of man's lifted up. God says whoever believes in him has eternal life. Because God loved the world... He gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have life. Well, then I'm going to do that. Well, what are you waiting on? Do it. Do it today. Do it. By doing that, you're admitting. I believe that's the only way. I can't be good enough. You're admitting you're a sinner by saying, I need a Savior. I'm going to trust that. And so we finished your notes, and I asked you, please don't check out. I ran out of room on your paper, I promise. We should have had another half page, because here's what I've not done. What does this prayer mean? I want to offer this. If you'll give me about four minutes, I know that's long. Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. What does that mean? Two things are extremely important. Watch. Prayer and God's kingdom, we have to connect them. Here's what that means. On a daily basis, we intentionally align ourselves with God's kingdom. God's kingdom as it is now. To pray your kingdom come, Lord, means this. God, I accept you are the universal king. And Lord, there's some things in my life I don't really like and I have a lot of questions, but I submit, you're fully in control. I know you could stop any of this and you could bring anything good at any time. But I trust you, you're a father too. You have a purpose and so I am surrendering to your kingdom as it is, but Lord, I am longing for your kingdom as it shall be. So I had this, I print my notes on Thursday evening. They stop around here. I have, I'm in this section right here. And yesterday morning, I'm literally, I'm like, Lord, I, st I still don't think I know. And nobody I've read has told me what this really is about. What does this really mean? What are you after in our prayers here? And so then I look back to chapter 5, and it dawns on me, Lord, the whole way through this message, these beatitudes, this salt and light, this more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees by a lot, not by a little, by a lot. Like, don't just don't kill. Don't even have anger. Don't just don't commit adultery. Don't even look with lust in your heart. Don't retaliate when people do you wrong. Give to people. Love your enemy. Don't be an enemy back. Love them. Pray for them. All this. Don't take oaths. Live so honestly you never have to take oaths. Don't do your righteous acts to be seen. Be for real. Keep some things private just between you and the I'm reading this and it dawns on me like, Lord, you are constantly calling us to more than we are. We are not these things. I'm not. We're struggling. Lord, and the Lord's saying, that's exactly what I'm saying. 
The person, the Christian who prays literally from the heart for my kingdom is the person who does not have, deep, have roots deep in this life. This version of this life, and that's most of us here this morning. I'm just going to tell it like this. Most of us have roots so deep in this life, we are so satisfied with our hobbies and junk, we don't need God's kingdom. No big hurry, Lord. I like it just like it is. I don't want the rapture to come. I haven't had kids yet, or I haven't gotten married yet, or I don't have grandkids. I haven't been to Disney World. Our roots are so in the wrong place. We need to trim those things so that this life, some of you think Washington, D.C. has got answers. They have nothing. I have no confidence in them. I want a real king. I want a real kingdom. But we're so deeply rooted here. He's calling us to more. Most of us aren't there. What this prayer does, it says this. It starts right here. Lord, I accept your universal rule. I don't like it all, but I accept it. But God, you're in my heart, my soul, spirit. I need you to take over more. Start trimming and cutting. And Lord, use me. To further your kingdom, I know I can't bring the consummation of your kingdom, but I can worry about the who. Use me, God. And I think this, this prayer, hang with me right here, this prayer is evangelistic. I think it is literally praying. I, I prayed yesterday and this week. Lord, save somebody today. Maybe somebody watching online right now. Maybe a while ago, somebody finally dawned on them, John 3, what in the world? This looks like we just have to believe. And then maybe they did it, and I'll never know. If you ever do this, please let me know. It's really encouraging. We want to know. We want to help you grow. But we'll start praying. This evangelist, Lord, save souls. Lord, become stronger in your rule in my heart. Take over more areas. Lord, use me to further your kingdom. But ultimately, it finally, I think, dawned on me. It's real simple. Here it is. We're just asking God to hasten the start of the kingdom. Now, why would I do that? Lord, even so come quickly. If you have deep roots, you're not worried about this. You'll never pray this from the heart. But quickly, why? Watch. Because I love you and I want to see you exalted. And on a selfish level, I want more of you. I want more. Of, I want to see you exalted and I want more of you from me. And so, yes, I'm going to read you what I wrote, and then we'll have heads bowed and eyes closed. It finally occurred to me, this prayer is this person. This Christian is exactly like one half of an engaged couple. This one's engaged to this one. We're half of an engaged couple when we pray this prayer properly. What do you mean? The person with multiple dating partners, that one, that one, that one. That's fine as long as they're honest. And not being immoral. Let them know, yeah, I went out with them, I went out with that, it's fine. The person with multiple dating partners or the person who's wondering, can I do better? Can I do better? They're in no hurry to get married. I don't say these comments because I, I, for this reason, I realize there may be someone here this morning and they're being pressured to get married. Now, I did, I was kind of, should I get married? Why? Because money. We don't have enough money. I'm committed, I love you, but I just don't know, and that, that makes us cautious. But this person, 
The person with multiple dating partners, the one who's wondering if they can do better, they're in no rush to be married. But the one who is committed and spends their days and nights longing to be with their one true love just wants the marriage to go ahead and come. Just let it come. I want it now. Please don't take this wrong. Hey, this, this phone stuff, this is great. I want more. Why would I be offended at that? You want more of me than a phone conference? Yes. Do you think we missed the date? Don't you think we should maybe bump it up? But we've already sent out the invitation. Who cares about the invitations? Let's just go elope. I just want to be married. I'm tired of talking on the phone. I want you to be with me. That's this prayer. This person is longing to consummate the marriage. So we have to ask ourselves, do I really long for the Lord that way? Is he my one true love? Or are there competitors for my affection? Am I content with this version of life? And the kingdom of God, it can come later. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? And that's why we had to look at three words today. So as I pray, I have some questions, and I'll go quickly. I want everybody to listen. So here's the first one. You may live your life and die, but you need to understand that the rapture is going to occur. And listen, it's really going to happen. There's going to be an unsuspecting group of people. My question is, if the rapture occurred today, would you be in heaven with me? Or would you be left here to go through tribulation and then great tribulation and probably be deceived and follow an antichrist and join his army and be annihilated by Christ and then stand before him at a great white throne judgment and be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever in torments. It's probably someone here today. You just don't have a crowd this size. do this. I don't do it often, but I'm going to do it. No one looking around. No one looking around. But if you're here this morning, you say, Jeff, I know if the rapture occurred today, I'll be in heaven. I know that 100%. I have a Bible reason. This isn't just feeling. It's not because I go to church. Not because my mom and dad and all those things. I know I'll go to heaven and I can testify to that by raised hand. Would you do that? You say, I know that I'm going to heaven. Would you raise your hand? Hold them up just for a moment. I'm looking around. only one or two hands did not go up if that's you I want to beg you either talk to me or better right now God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever that means you whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life If you're unsure, why don't you just right now just bring God into focus. Talk to Him from your heart. God, I've sinned. I have sinned. And I'm sorry. But I believe Jesus was lifted up on a cross and I put my faith in Him. God, tell Him. I mean it. God, I believe Jesus' death was for me. It was enough. 
You said if I believe, I'll not perish, I'll have life. So Lord, I'm asking you to save me right now. Would you save me right now? I receive. Lord, right now I receive your forgiveness of my sins. You can't lie. You cannot lie, God. Thank you. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for saving me. Christian, just you and the Lord. Talk to him for a moment. Is this the truth? God, I don't pray this prayer because my roots are in this world. My hobbies, money, titles, fame, power, clothes, shopping, ball teams, my job, my family, my kids. I am not hungry and thirsty and longing for you because I'm all into this world. Forgive me, Lord. Clip my roots. I want to pray this prayer. So, Father, Lord, make us want you to come. We want you to come. Lord, help us to want you to come more. Lord, we're the bride of Christ. We're married, but not consummated yet. We long for that day. So, Lord, let your kingdom come. We want to see you exalted. Every knee bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the King of all kings. We're longing for that day.